us. Good to be back again. Um, you'll have to do a little more work if you're a sermon note taker and you've noticed uh, that uh, Dr. Andrews did intend to be here, um, was trying his hardest, but uh, going to need another week, I think, hopefully by, by the end of ne- uh, next week, he'll be ready to go. But I'm happy to be back again and, um, and uh, be with you guys. Um, and, uh, you know, as you think about COVID and all the difficulties that surrounded it, and um, maybe like the Andrews family and my wife's family, you've experienced, you know, uh, death from COVID or death with COVID or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you see people's reaction to the fear of death, I think. In, in America, I've seen it more on display in a way maybe people overseas are a little more accustomed to dying young, but we Americans are generally well taken care of, have good hospitals, good health care, and people don't generally uh, die unexpectedly. And so there's been a lot of fear uh, in our culture the last year for sure fear of death, and uh, fear drives us to do things that we might not have otherwise done, doesn't it? Um, and as you get close to death, uh, I heard someone talking on the radio, not a, uh, not a Christian person, but a secular person talking about how he, he uh, finds it very intriguing, people's last words right before they die. Um, and it is, a, if you've ever, as most of you probably have, who are older, sat with someone as they passed on, um, it's, it's, a, it's a clarifying moment, isn't it? Of the monotony of life, the sameness, the thinking this will go on forever. You sit with someone in their last moments, you see them take their last breath, and you realize there's either something after we die or there's either nothing after we die. They know now, but we're still here. And I sat with my, my, my grandpa, my, uh, my mother's father, um, last fall. He, he was 92, 90-something, 90 uh, and so he was good and old, had dementia, and, and sat with him in his last few hours that he was alive, thinking this was the closest person, really, to me that I've ever uh, sat with who had, uh, who had, who had died. Uh, we lived with him for two years, right before he went overseas, after my grandma died and helped take care of him. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, he was a believer, loved the Lord, and thinking of the joy that he will be experienced, the freedom, having his mind back again, having his body, um, no more pain. And as we think of, of death, and we turn here to Second Peter, where we're going to be today, here we have Peter. And this is, this is his last word. This is his deathbed moment, if you will. Uh, He knows he's sitting in a prison. He knows he's going to most likely be executed. Um, His death is coming. He's a little bit older than we assume than some of the other apostles. Um, John seems to be younger. There's some speculation that that's, we talk about the tomb and they ran to the tomb and John beat him. Perhaps John was a bit of a younger man. bit of speculation, not sure that's actually true. But here he is, sitting at the end of his life, clear mind, and he wants to have one last message to the church. And we're going to see today where he talks directly about he knows he's going to die. 
And you might think someone who is suffering in a prison and about to be executed unjustly just for following Christ and preaching his message, uh, that he might have had reason to despair and be discouraged and, and even greatly depressed. I think if you or I are in that circumstance, no one would fault us for being a bit discouraged at that point in our life. But when you read 2 Peter, you don't, you don't see any complaining. There's no, wow, I just wish we had a better government, and wow, wouldn't it be great if I could get out of here? He has a very different message. He says, the Lord has worked this out. I know I'm at the end. But what I really want you to know is that the plan that God had for my life that led me here is the same plan that he has for the church's life, that the same plan that he has for our life. And whatever we're going through today, whatever you've been going through this last week, whatever you've been dealing with this last difficult year that it's been in our country, in the world, we really have a lot less to despair about than Peter had at this moment right here that he was writing this letter. In fact, church history teaches us that the following 2,000 years, or not 2,000, 200 years after Peter wrote this letter were some of the darkest times in the church's history. Christianity became illegal in the Roman Empire, and basically the entire church was under some serious persecution. And yet, Peter writes a prophetic message to them to tell them what's going to happen. And he, he has no hint of despair or discouragement or depressment in his voice. And what we're going to focus on today is three guides for, that Peter had that kept him from discouragement and despair. Three guides. Three guides that we can use on our journey what Peter's going to describe as a journey in a dark place while we wait for the day to dawn. So my purpose is to remind you today of God's call and plan for us, which includes, as we've covered in Peter, 2 Peter before, includes a difficult journey through an immoral and dark world, but a sure promise of escape and entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now, last week, we saw uh, Peter directly talk about that entrance into the eternal kingdom. He says, it will be supplied to you. But there are three requirements we saw last week for entrance into the eternal kingdom. First, it, we saw that it required our earnest effort. We have a knowledge of God, and that knowledge of God enables us to have access to the divine power of God, which gives us everything for life and godliness, Peter says. But despite all that, and we have a very sure guarantee that we will escape this immoral world and we will share in the divine nature with God. But even in that partnership, and in, we have a responsibility, which is our earnest effort, he says. Not only our earnest effort, but he lists a great number of virtues that we're going to have earnest effort in. We're going to display self-control. We're going to display godliness. We're going to display endurance. We're going to have love for one each other in the church, brotherly love. We're going to have love in general for everyone, even those who persecute us. We're going to have fruit in Christian life. That's a requirement to get into the kingdom. You have to have fruit. You can't have 
no fruit, and get into the kingdom, he says. Those people are blind. They've forgotten all about the true washing of sins. And you have to have a confirmed invitation. And we saw in the parable uh, of the wedding banquet that there's a general call that God has put out to the world. Everyone is invited to his kingdom. But there are people who want to come into his kingdom, but they want to get in their own way. We have to get into the kingdom God's way. And his way requires moral purity. His way requires our earnest effort. Our earnest effort, which we do confident that God has already given us everything we need. And he will supply the entrance into his eternal kingdom. So today, on our journey into this eternal kingdom, as Peter is going to describe it throughout the book, and you'll see several uh, terms here. And if you read Second Peter, it's one of the keys to understanding Second Peter is a lot of the letters in the New Testament, they had sort of an interesting way of writing in which they would, they would uh, use a, a, an illustration, a metaphor, certain key words that would come, uh, occur throughout the letter. And you can sort of understand he taught theology through some word pictures and some consistent ones. And the one that Peter chose to use in 2 Peter is, is this idea that we are on a journey in the Christian life. We're on a journey in a dark world. And we have the hope of an eternal kingdom. And that's where we're headed to. And we keep our eyes fixed on that as we journey on. So today, if you're feeling discouraged doubting God's word, if you're doubting God's faithfulness, let's look at these guides that Peter has for us that will keep us from that, that kept him from that. Let's read Second Peter. We're going to be in Second Peter 1, 12 through the end of the chapter, 21. I'll read it for us. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. For we, do not, we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when, he, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, which is a guide for us, like a star in a dark place, which guides us to your truth, to your kingdom. Uh, would your Holy Spirit 
Speak to every person today. Confirm your truth. Encourage them through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to see three guides on our journey through a dark place while we wait for the day to dawn. Three guides. First guide. We see here in uh, 12 through 15, Peter's got another little words that he likes to say over and over in this short letter, and one of them is remind. He wants to remind, remind, remind. And, he's gonna, and we see that one, the first guide is being continually reminded of God's plan and promises. Read with me again, if you will, starting in verse 12 there. I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. Now, I was talking just a moment ago about deathbed wishes, and here it is. Here's Peter saying directly, I'm, I'm, I'm here for just a little bit longer, and if I have to leave you one thing, I have to leave you one thing, it's this, I want to remind you again of something I already said. That's kind of amazing if you think about it. He doesn't tell them something they didn't know already. We assume they've been believers for a while. And he wants to remind them once again of these sure promises. And look, he says in verse 12, therefore, what's, what's, what comes before it? Well, all that we just discussed, the fact that we have a sure promise, that God has given us a sure promise that we will escape into the eternal kingdom that we will share in his divine nature, that we will have all the divine, access to all the divine power we need for life and godliness, and that we must supply earnest effort in our Christian life. All of that is what Peter wants to remind us of. And look there, if you will, at the second half of the verse there in verse 12 even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. It's very similar to what we talked about last week. He says, brothers, you confirm your calling. He's not talking to people who are lost. He's not talking to the lost in the church. He's not talking to the world. He says, if we need to confirm our calling, it's because we have a calling, we're brothers. In the same way, he says, you are in this established truth. You're already in it. They already know it. This is not new information that Peter is giving them, but he wants to remind them of it, even on his deathbed. Look ahead there in 13. He says, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. That's a, that's a good... I hadn't read the CSB much um, before preparing this sermon, and I saw how they translated that. Most of the other translations translate that phrase, stir up. But I thought, well, that's a, that's a kind of a nice translation, wake us up. And we sometimes need a little bit of a, a wake up. Like, he says, you are in the truth. You know the truth. Oh, I'm going to wake you up again. And here's what he's going to wake them. He, say, he says, he uses himself as an example. Look in 14. Since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me, and I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. So we know from the Gospels 
that Peter, that Jesus very clearly told Peter that he was going to be martyred. He said uh, they were having the discussion if John was going to stay until the end, and they said it's not for you to know, and so this controversy, uh, thinking arose that John would stay alive until Jesus came, which is not what Jesus says, as John explains in his gospel. But he says to Peter, when you are old, someone will stretch out your hands and lead you where you don't want to go. And he's, it, it, it's a, it's a uh, euphemistic way of talking about crucifixion, uh, because you may not know this, but the word to crucify was actually a swear word um, in, in the Roman world in the first century. So to even say crucify or cross was, was really a harsh thing to say on the ears. Uh, it was such an offensive concept to the Romans that they didn't even talk about it, so they had all sorts of different ways of talking about it, such as hanging someone on a tree. Uh, and another way to talk about it was someone stretching out your hands and leading you where you don't want to go. Which is why, so Jesus avoided kind of the harsh term. And if you actually read through the gospel, you'll actually notice it's, it's, it's a really rarely said phrase. Jesus doesn't usually say crucify or cross, uh, which you may not have realized, very similar to the term Christian. Not, it's, it was not a nice term, and so people didn't use it of themselves. But Jesus had told Peter that you're going to serve me, and you will be martyred for me. You will die serving me. And Peter wants, that's one reason Peter had no discouragement. He knew that this was God's plan for him. And what he wants to remind the readers of is that God has a similar plan for you. A plan that includes a difficult journey in an immoral world in which our earnest effort is required. My oldest daughter, um, last Sunday when we were getting in the van to come here, she, she asked me, uh, Daddy, why do we have to go to church? And uh, I think in an era of COVID, a lot of people, you know, adults have asked themselves that more than ever. Um, and, you know, when you're answering a six-year-old, there's a lot of things you could say to an adult that you don't necessarily get to say to a, you know, it wouldn't make sense to a six-year-old. But I think when we think about why we're here, and some of you have been here for decades, sitting in this church, seeing me when I was little, coming here when I was young, see me grow up, you're still sitting here, you're still faithful. Why, why do we do it? This is it right here. We need a reminder. We need a reminder every week, don't we? We need a reminder every day. That's why we read this book that I've you know, read multiple times through, and yet every morning I come to it and I get some fresh encouragement, some fresh realignment of my thinking with the Word of God. We need constant reminder, don't we? It's going to guide us in our journey. Because the world, and we're seeing it now more than ever in this country, but you go overseas, it's just in your face. The world is lost. They reject God's truth. They want nothing to do with his ways. And they are trying to convince you to follow them. And we need a constant reminder. So the first guide is being constantly reminded of God's plan and promises. Second, uh, Second guide we'll see in this passage is eyewitness testimony of God's power. 
eyewitness testimony of God's power. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was a lot of, if you've ever, anyone, if you've ever studied the Greco-Roman religion, it's all myths, isn't it? It's just myth after myth after fairy tale after fairy tale, which even some of the, their own Greek philosophers said, well, these obviously aren't true, but they have some secret truth to life. And in fact, that's sort of become a, a popular interpretation in our own modern world as well. There must be some deep truth in the Bible, but we've got to sort of, it, obviously it can't be actually true, but we have to sort of study it in an interesting sort of way to find its hidden secrets that it's encoded for us. Uh, if you turn on the History Channel, you can always find those sorts of programs, can't you? This is not a myth, he says. It's real. This story of Jesus is not a myth. It's not a story that we tell. You know, I was telling, uh, uh, we were, some reason, I don't know why, we got into talking about animals going to heaven, and some, that led us into Balaam and the donkey, and uh, I was telling our kids about Balaam and the donkey, and my oldest again, she said, that's quite the story, Daddy, about a talking donkey. But if you study Old Testament studies, I mean, the, the top scholars, not the, not the evangelical ones, but the more secular ones, I mean, they, they just look at the story of the snake and the, and the talking snake and the talking donkey. Obviously, that's not true. You get that right, they say. This is a clear myth. Peter says, you know why it's true? I, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness testimony. What was the eyewitness testimony to? Look. Verse 17, for me, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So he's talking specifically, if, if, if you see where he's talking about, he's talking specifically about the transfiguration. That he saw Jesus, and what did, what did Jesus look like at that moment? He looked like he's going to look like when he comes in power. That's what they saw. And so Peter wants to reassure them, look, Jesus coming in power is a sure thing. It's going to happen. Every eye will see him. And you know why I am so confident and I can sit in this Roman prison and be martyred for this message? It's because I saw with my own eyes the man himself in his glory. And I heard the words of God himself, the Father, Speaking from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, you trust me because I'm an eyewitness to this truth. <clears throat> in fact, God is the only source of truth. If you study philosophy any time at all, you find it very difficult to come up with what is the source of truth. And, and we've entered into that time, uh, that thinking in our Western world. We don't have any source for truth. We're trying to discover it. And, and if you take God out of the equation, what you find is there really is no source for truth. It's just subjective, whatever you want to make of it. But as believers, we understand God, is the, God has to be the ultimate source of all truth. And here he is, God himself, the source of all truth, confirming Jesus 
This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves, verse 18, heard his voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. In fact, these words are so important to remember because there were only three eyewitnesses, right? Yeah, unless you count Elijah and, 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 uh, and Moses. There were only three living eyewitnesses, Peter, James, and John, right? Only three men in the history of the world can testify to this event. And Peter says, on my deathbed, I want to remind you, this is not a myth. I didn't make it up. I saw it with my own eyes. We were with him on that holy mountain. Now, I think um, the, the, the bigger the internet becomes, the more connected we become to the internet and social media, the more I've seen that uh, lies on, on, of what is true are harder and harder to discern, even for the discerning. And uh, even, you know, I don't know if you've seen a few of these, uh, they've kind of floated around a couple of them where someone will say, look, listen, listen to what she said. And then you hear it like, oh yeah, that's terrible. And then someone, no, no, they said this. And then you hear the audio clip again. And uh, you're like, oh yeah, I think she did say that. And they're like completely opposite things. I don't know if you've seen those, but I've seen a couple of them and they kind of blow your mind. Like I'm actually hearing words and I'm not sure what's being said. And, and misinformation from both sides is, is difficult to discern what's truth, isn't it? And we are easily deceived, even by well-intentioned people. I mean, we hear one thing, we think we heard it, we're well-intentioned, we're trying to help people. And a lot of times, even this well-intentioned comes right into the Bible itself. And uh, one of the things I saw and had to interact with as I studied higher and higher up in the biblical studies world, was you have to interact with people who cast doubt on the word of God. And I have to be honest with you, even I, when I read some of their arguments and read some of the evidence that they give against the Bible, had some serious, like, seasons of doubt trying to answer these questions. Now, thankfully, the Lord led me to good answers and, and good sources and good information that made it clear that his word is true and is trustworthy. And Peter wants us to know on his deathbed, this word that you are holding in your hands is not a myth. This story of Jesus, not a story, it's, it's history. Told through eyewitnesses who are trustworthy. His coming his coming was real. God himself testified to it, and his coming will be real. Two guides. We have constant reminding ourselves of God's plan and promises. We have eyewitness testimony. It's a guide for us. Third, uh, we have the Holy Spirit's prophetic word. And one thing you'll notice is just a side note. If you're there's not, there's not a, like a one verse. It'd be very nice if there's one verse that explained the Trinity or one passage, you know. The Trinity is never exactly spelled out terribly clearly in the New Testament. Uh, it's, not, it's not a strict theological, systematic theological textbook that we can take and study it like we would some other subjects. But if you study it carefully, you see that it is there. 
because Peter, in this one chapter, has all three persons of the Trinity. We have Jesus, who he calls God in, in, verse, um, in verse 1. We have God the Father, also in uh, ver- verse 1 and 2. We have, um, sorry, verse 2. And here at the end, he talks about the Holy Spirit in verse 21. Three members of the Trinity, all in chapter 1, all having a part to play, all talked about as God himself, the message of the Trinity. So we have the Holy Spirit's prophetic word. Look with me, if you will, uh, further down. Verse 19, he says, We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, the, the, the translation is... Um, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, but you could translate it as the most sure prophetic word. Peter wants us to know what we have right here is the most sure prophetic word you could possibly have. God's sure word, he says, is like a lamp that guides us in a dark place as we wait for the dawn of the morning star. Now, the morning star, in my own research, is trying to figure out exactly what he meant by that metaphor, by that illustration. Uh, it was a little unclear. Often the morning star was used, uh, it's, when we talk about the morning star, that's Venus, which is the first star that rises in the morning. And it was often used um, by ships, Ships would orient their direction based on Venus, on the morning star. Um, But also in Greco-Roman life, the morning star was considered the star that guided the deceased to heaven. So I'm not sure exactly uh, which one he intended to imply by saying the morning star. And of course we know the morning star can itself refer very much to Jesus himself. But the point is, it's a guiding star. It's a guiding star. That's why he says the morning star. It's not just, oh, there's a star, that's pretty. No, the morning star was essential for guidance. We need guidance on our journey. We need a beacon to focus on, to get us through. Otherwise, we'll become shipwrecked. As uh, Paul makes the example in 1 Timothy, he says, Having faith and good conscience, some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Do you want to avoid getting shipwrecked in your Christian life? Keep your eyes focused on the beacon, on the guide. What is it? Remind yourself of God's plan in this life. Look with me in verse 20 now. Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between what we hold in our hands in every other book in the world. That's the difference that the world does not accept. Amen? 
They say this is just another book written by men. But Peter wants us to know what I'm telling you right now about Jesus. This, this even, is, even though I am an eyewitness to it, this is not a matter of my own interpretation. This is not my own interpretation of the events that happened. This is not a myth made up by men like, so many, like every other myth in the world. This is not a story that someone worked, cleverly worked out and fitted all the details just right so it would appeal to people for 2,000 years and people would give up their lives for it. It's not like that. We have a prophetic word which comes from the Holy Spirit himself. He's carried Peter to speak these words, he says. Peter wants us to know that his words are like the prophets of old. The prophets of old did not speak from themselves. I don't know. I read through the Old Testament um, and, uh, one year, a couple years ago, and I start, had it a certain order in that I was reading a lot of the histories, and you read about what happened and what God did and the kings and what they did. And then I, after the histories, I came to the prophets, and as I was reading the prophets, you open it up and it says, thus says the Lord, and the Lord himself speaks. And that was just, I, I don't know, it just struck me that year, that wow, the histories are great, they're great to read, they're encouraging, discouraging at times. But when you read, open up the prophets, and you see, thus says the Lord, and the Lord starts talking. And you're reading the, the words of the Lord, it's like, this is refreshing. Even though the message was often one of, condemnation and censure, to hear the words of the Lord himself speak to us. And that's what Peter heard, isn't it? This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. You can trust him. The Holy Spirit guided these men to speak these words, to write these words. You can trust it too. Peter trusted it to his death. You can trust it no matter what God calls you to. One of the discussions that my wife and I have often is, what's led to the downgrade of the West? You know, you go to the East and Hinduism and Buddhism, Confucianism prevail. They haven't had a history of cultural domination of Christianity. What, what, what is it, what is it the kernel that's, that's really undermining our culture? That's really leading us more to the Eastern way of viewing the world. And as you see the rise of the popularity of Buddhism in the world, becoming more and more popular among people and its practices and its philosophies, because they have no answer and they're looking. And I think, I think one of the key, if not the key kernel, it's just the undermining of God's word. It's very simple. It started in the place of the Reformation, mostly in Germany. German scholars came to the Old Testament in the 1800s, and they started to question for the first time. In fact, it started with a Jewish scholar, one of the first. He, he questioned that very thing. Is this snake who talks, was that actually real? That's, where, that's almost where it started, you could say. And he says, I, 
I think it is, but he gives the possibility that it could be a myth. And then from there, scholars built and built and questioned more and more, was there really this Adam? Was there really this garden? Was there really this fruit from which they ate and all humanity fell? Was there really a flood? Was there really an exodus? And then they went so far as they doubt the authors themselves. Well, Moses didn't really write this. Paul didn't really write this. If you get into scholarship today, this is where we're at, doubting that Paul wrote several of the letters that we say he did write. No one believes in higher scholarship among the non-conservatives. No one believes that Peter wrote 2 Peter. It's the most, that, if there's any book in the Bible, they're sure that that person did not write it. They're very sure that Peter did not write 2 Peter. And then when they discarded the author, they began to doubt that there was any meaning in the text at all. And, and uh, radical philosophies, which we don't even realize, are influencing our very culture to its foundations right now. There is no meaning in the text itself. The author, when he, the, the one French scholar said, even when I wrote my own book, I, don't, I don't, can't say that I know its meaning because the meaning is outside of me. And the only thing important is how it affects you when you look at it. It's modern art, if you will. It's not important that there's meaning. What's important is how it affects you when you look at it. This is how they treat the Word of God now. Brothers and sisters, our, our truth is not like other facts based on human opinion and research. We have eyewitness testimony. I think in the last year we've seen discussion on people that we never thought we would doubt, doctors, and how do, how do we trust this doctor, how do we trust that doctor? People are arguing with each other. We see human knowledge, human research, human ability to figure out what's going on is extremely limited, and we disagree with each other. And, and we see things different ways. We look at the same facts and we have different opinions on them. That's why Peter wants us to know this is not like that. You need to remind yourself of this constantly. I'm an eyewitness, an eyewitness to it. But most of all, he wants us to know that there is a dawning day. It will be, there's a little phrase there, he says, in your hearts. There's a scholarly discussion on what exactly it means, but I think, I think really what he is trying to say is, because gonna, he's going to expound upon the opposite side of it in chapter 2, he say, in, in your opinion, this dawning day will be an incredible, wonderful thing. But to the other people who do not trust in it, it's not going to be a dawning day. It's going to be the dawn of a terrible day of judgment, he's going to say in chapter 2. It will not be a glorious morning for them. It will be the most terrible morning of their entire life. If you hold on to this truth, he says, it will be the dawn of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I don't know if you saw, well, 
We saw today three guides for our journey through a dark place while we wait for the day to dawn. We saw to be continually reminded of God's plans and promises. First guide, that's why we're here. If you were discouraged, if you're feeling like you want to give up, if you're feeling like it's not worth your time to come to church, Peter wants you to know it is worth your time. You need the reminder. And we have eyewitness testimony. Our truth is not like the truth of the world. It is verified by eyewitnesses, but not only is it verified by eyewitnesses, it is verified by the Holy Spirit himself. He's our third guide. His prophetic word is trustworthy, unlike any word of man. And uh, you might have seen yesterday that Larry King died. And uh, I was watching a few short clips of interviews of him later in his life. And uh, I saw one talk, talking specifically about his belief in the purpose of life. And, you know, he was just like, you know, he said, uh, somebody hits a home run and wins the World Series. He says he recognized that a billion people in China care nothing for that at all. What's the purpose of life? He says, I don't know. I can't figure it out. And asked about an afterlife, he said, I just don't believe in any sort of afterlife. He says, I'm not religious, but he's interviewed thousands of people who said they've seen death. You see, he's basing it on the testimony of man, the interpretation of man. And the answer is, I just don't buy it, he says. In fact, he went so far, and I think this is really instructive, whenever you see doubt of afterlife, doubt of God, there's... There's something deeper behind it. He said that he read the Old Testament at at a grandchild's bar mitzvah for the first time in ages. And all he had to say was, that God. And to, to soften his language, he says, what a jerk. I, he says, I don't buy the afterlife because I don't like that God. He has a specific way that we must live by. He has a plan that's not like the plans of the world. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. In fact, it could end in sitting in a prison. But much like, you ever read in Hebrews 11, there's one that sticks out to me. I've always thought it's strange in Hebrews 11:20, he sort of changes what they're commended for, for their faith. It says, verse 11:20 of Hebrews, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. There's a short little... Three of the greatest patriarchs of the faith. You could say a lot of things, especially about Joseph, couldn't you? About what he did. But the thing that the the author of Hebrews wants to focus on, Joseph at the end of his life knew God had a plan. And he made preparations for that plan. Let me ask you today, are you making your life, are you ordering it? based on God's promises and plan? Are you aware of his plan? Are you reminding yourself constantly of his plan? Or are you letting yourself be discouraged by the world and its alternative message, 
which contradicts his plan, which contradicts his morality, which contradicts his standards, and which denies most of all that there is a coming judgment for the way they live. We uh, got the word that we'll be uh, moving cities. We're going to be moving to Bangkok in, uh, when we go back, most likely. Not confirmed yet. Be working a little bit more with the seminary in Bangkok, hopefully, and doing a little bit more theological training. And uh, I've had a little bit of intrepidation because uh, uh, we live in the bit in the countryside, and although the culture is Im completely immoral, it's not so much in your face, but I'm just thinking of moving to the New York City of Thailand and the immorality that's really in your face, and um, I need this. My children need this. This is the only guide we have right here. And it's not like other guides. It's an eyewitness guide confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Let's focus on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you guide us um, through this journey in a dark world? Father, would you keep our eyes fixed on you, the morning star, until that day that the day dawns and you arrive? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.